Sleep is one of life's sweetest delicacies, except when you're supposed to be wide awake. In Romans chapter 13, verses 11 to 14, the Apostle Paul sounds the alarm for the Roman believers to wake up. For Paul, it was no time to be asleep. Christ could return at any second. Turn to Romans 13 as Dave Wordson challenges us on what we should believe about the nearness of Christ's return today and then what we should do about it. Sunday night was recovery time. Any of you feel that Sunday night is like a recovery time for you? You've gone through a, a busy weekend. Friday night, you met with some friends and you ate dinner together. You go rushing home, gather to get the kids together because Saturday afternoon, man, the Fort Worth stock shows on. So you got to hit Fort Worth. So you take all of your kids to Fort Worth. You got tickets for the rodeo Saturday night. So you just go and see a big buck off all Saturday night. You got to get up early. You fight trying to get the kids ready to come to church. And uh, you come to church. You spend the morning in church. Sunday afternoon. How many of you have ever had to do homework on Sunday afternoon? Anybody ever done that? So you're working on homework Sunday night. Robert was a business executive. He was in uh, development and entertainment for his company. And as he went to roll into bed at 10.30 Sunday night, he was exhausted. So all of you can identify with Robert. But man, when he set his alarm, he had to set his alarm for 4.30. Anybody ever done that? He set his alarm for 4.30 because he had to be at DFW. His flight left at 7.05 for Seattle. For six months, he'd been working with a team at work. He had an appointment with the vice president of development for Microsoft. And he'd been working for six months to get this appointment. And he had a lunch appointment. And then at 1.30, he was going to get to sit down and make his pitch. But man, when he set his alarm for 4.30, got into bed, pulled the covers up, rolled over, said, honey, good night, he was out like a light. Anybody ever done that? Suddenly, the next morning, his wife says, honey, 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 wake up, what are you doing? And Robert kind of comes out of his unconsciousness, and then he set up his, his wife's voice, when he looked at his alarm clock, was like, an incredible death sentence. It was 7.25. He could see he has to go to work that day with his team. He had missed his flight for Seattle. It was 7.25, and his flight from DFW left that. That's not going to work out. You know, sleep is a precious thing. How many of you would agree with me that sleep is really a precious thing. Everybody agree with that? But sleep is a deadly thing when you're supposed to be awake. I want you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 13 today because the Apostle Paul says that the alarm is not only set, but it's going off. And what he's trying to do is he talks to a group of Roman believers. It's 57 A.D., and Jesus died in about 33 A.D. So that means for the Apostle Paul, it's 24 years since Jesus rose again from the dead. Can you imagine that? Living in a time period where it's only 24 years 
since Jesus rose again from the dead. The, the, the people that Paul wrote this letter to, I'm pretty sure that there were, there were believers that had come across the Roman roads from Judea and they had actually seen Jesus teach. The Apostle Paul was raised in Judea, but uh, he wasn't related to Jesus' earthly ministry. So I don't know for sure that Paul saw Jesus in his earthly life. But Paul, as he shared the book of Romans, Paul really was acquainted with people that had been there in 33 AD. And now 24 years has gone by. And what he's talking to the church about, what I want you to feel, is the Apostle Paul is standing on his tippy toes. You say, why do you say that? Because the Apostle Paul sounds the alarm in this passage, and he says, the alarm's going off. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm going to come and visit you in Rome, but I might not make it because before I get to Rome, Jesus might come back again, and you need to wake up. You say, Dave, where do you get that from? Look what it says. Look at uh, Romans chapter 13. And look at verse 11. And do this. Paul starts out this, like most preachers, do this. The Apostle Paul is going all the way back to Romans 12.1. Can anybody start out Romans 12.1? I'll help you. I beseech you, good, I beseech you therefore, my brothers and sisters, because of all the mercies of God, that you present your bodies, quote it with me, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service of worship. And then the Apostle Paul, remember we've studied together, the Apostle Paul told us not to conform to the world, don't let the world pour it into its mold, but instead to be transformed, to be daily changed as we renew our mind, which is what you're doing right now. You're renewing your mind. You're, you're listening to the scripture. You're letting Jesus' voice speak to you. So be transformed. Don't let the world, and, it, and the, the phrase there is not the world. It's this present age, this present time period that you're living in. Don't let it become your only perspective. Instead, be transformed by this renewing resurrection power of Jesus. Then he talked to us about all of you are gifted. So we're all in this family, this incredible body of Christ, and every one of you has abilities. Then we talked about our individual lives. And remember, we, we started out the new year with that, that list the Apostle Paul gave us of the way that we should live. And I hope you're continuing to pray for that. Rejoice with those that rejoice. Weep with those that weep. You know, all of those incredible principles that it looks like a whole grocery list, but it really lays out what it means to be Christ-like in the way that you live. Now he's coming to the end of this section. The next session we deal together, the apostle is going to teach us about how we keep from fighting. And that's where I'm going to end today and kind of whet our appetite. How do, you, how do you keep from fighting in your families? How do you keep from fighting in your church family? How do you keep from fighting with other believers? But before the Apostle Paul walks into this very strategic, practical section, he reminds us that Jesus is coming back. He says, and now do this. Present your bodies. Renew your mind daily. Why? Understanding, knowing, every one of you, because you've heard the book of Romans this morning, I want you to know something. He says, what, I say, Paul, what do you want me to know? What do you want me to keep before my mind daily? I want you to know the present time. Know that the hour has come. You are to awake from slumber. You're not to be sleeping like Robert. And you don't have a plane to catch. You've got a Savior to meet. Amen? 
You don't have a plane to catch. You've got a Savior to meet. He says, I want you to wake up. I don't want you to be sleeping. Why? Because your salvation is nearer than when we first believed. And this is what I want you to understand. How many of you would say, Dave, I remember when I first came to know Jesus, man, I was really into this coming of the Lord thing. How many of you agree with that? Like when I first came to know the Lord, I was raised in a Plymouth Brethren church, and we were always talking about We had guys come through regularly. We had charts, and they had the time of, of creation, the time of Abraham, the time of David, the time of Jesus, and the present church age, which was a big parenthesis, and then the rapture, and then seven years of tribulation, and then the second return of Christ, the thousand-year reign of Christ, and the great eternal kingdom. I, was, I knew that when I was four years old. And how Lindsay came along. How many of you remember how Lindsay writing The Lake Great Planet Earth? Remember that? Some of you got saved and Hal said, it's going to happen before this generation. Then he went into very detailed, what is a generation? And so you could give the date. How many of you remember that? And lots of my buddies came to know Jesus because they said, hey man, Jesus could come back at any time. And then some of you went away to university, and some of you went away to Christian university. And so you started arguing. You found out, well, there's a whole lot of believers that don't believe he comes before the tribulation. So some of you in this room don't believe he comes before the tribulation. You think he comes at the end of the tribulation. And so there's a whole group of believers believe that. And those that believe he comes before the tribulation starts, and those that believe he comes at the end of the tribulation, they fight with each other over that. In fact, they found separate church families. Now, I want to tell you what's happening today. Among the younger generation, there's a whole bunch of believers now that are going all the way that that's all just child stuff. That's what you learn when you're a kid. Because we don't really know. And it's kind of just at the end, we just know that Christ is coming. And we don't really know what the map is for it. One of the things you need to do is read your Bible. Because one of the things in the midst of that debate, Hal Lindsey right now told me that in the 70s he was coming back. He didn't. I just had a friend call me. Do you know that Baghdad has the biggest, it has the biggest international complex of embassies? And do you know that already the Islamic nations have 10 nations? And if I was a certain kind of a preacher today, I could whoop you up. The next enemy is Islam. How many of you ever heard that? I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but some of you feel that Islam is the next enemy, so let's get them. You know, let's go wipe them out. And then I read Jonathan Edwards. You say, well, Dave, you're weird. You should read Jonathan Edwards' memoirs. But you know, Jonathan Edwards, when I read Jonathan Edwards' memoirs, you know when Jonathan Edwards lived? He lived before your American Revolution. Guess who the great Antichrist was? You know who the great ten-nation confederation was that was his enemy? It wasn't the ten nations of Europe. It wasn't the ten nations of Islamic oil, you know, cartels. It was the French. You know why? Because the French were fighting against the British. And it was a very real thing. And so one of the things I want you to get, that because I have a little bit of perspective on history, 
that I know that my brothers and sisters down through the centuries, it's the Islamic hordes that are coming across in the 7th century. They're the great enemy that's going to destroy us. And they were when they attacked believers and they wouldn't allow believers to trust Christ. But faithful brothers and sisters kept believing our Savior's coming back again. We've got a message that can even transform someone that's a committed Muslim. Because we've got a resurrected Savior. And right in the Quran, it talks about the Savior that rose again from the dead. So we're going to use those springboards from the Quran to reach them for Jesus. Because we've got a message that we love even our enemies. And we can bring a message of resurrection and forgiveness and new life. And we've got the only Savior that when you die, you know you're safely home. Amen? And there are believers that believe that. And by the way, Jonathan Edwards really believed that. So they're able to beat the Frenchies in the French and Indian War. If you go back in your ancient history, and if you're French, I'm not being mean to you. I love Paris, so don't please reject me because of that. And I want Frenchmen. In fact, our church family has one of our founding couples in Paris today declaring the good news of Jesus. Amen? I want every one of you to listen to me. Don't fight. This passage is going to end. Don't strive jealously against one another. Don't divide from one another. One thing I know after studying the Bible for many years is my Savior is on the brink of coming. Amen? And you say, well, Dave, that couldn't be. The Apostle Paul is telling believers to wake up in the first century that Jesus could come. What the point of this passage here is he wants them to be ready. He wants them to wake. He says, the hour has come. It's the idea of imminency. It's the same kind of construction. Remember when Jesus said, repent. John the Baptist started it. Repent. The kingdom of God is good. You're with me. Then Jesus comes right after John the Baptist. What did Jesus say? I want you to repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Was the kingdom of God at hand? How close was the kingdom of God? Listen, when Jesus stood with a group of Pharisees and said, I want you to turn around, I want you to turn around because the kingdom of God's at hand. Listen, brothers and sisters, the kingdom of God was standing there. He's the kingdom. He's the one. That's why he touched blind eyes and they could see. No one's blind in heaven. That's why he could touch lame people and they could walk because there's no lame people. He could go to my granddaughter and one day he's going to do it and he's going to say, Blythe, talk. And let me see your personality forever. And Jesus is going to take Blythe and put her in Courtney's arms and says, enjoy your daughter forever because there's no red syndrome in heaven. And I gave you great strength, and I blessed you, and I blessed Blythe, and I gave the Wurtzen and, the, and the, the Wurtzen family tremendous joy with that little girl. But our great hope, and your hope, because some of you have children just like that, you can get through it, because the kingdom is near. This could be the day. The Apostle Paul is saying this. You've got to understand it. History for Paul goes like this. Adam, Noah, Abraham. David, the Savior. And history moves linearly right up to the edge of a great cliff. I could do it like this. It's like you walk up to a great cliff. You come right up here. And then at the ascension of Jesus, when Jesus is enthroned at the right hand of God, history takes a right-hand turn. And what Paul is saying is we've been walking. Now, as I walk, 
In 57 AD, how close was the church to the end? From God's perspective, Jesus comes and we're ready. Was Paul wrong to teach believers in 57 AD that they needed to be awake because Jesus had made a promise in Acts chapter 1 that when he ascended, he's going to come back again? Were believers wrong to live as if this age wasn't all there is, that there was another age that was coming and just like that, it could come? What do you think? I don't think they were. You see, I can walk down this line. We might walk on this line for another thousand years. And that's the perspective of the Bible. We don't know how long it's going to be. Some of you are sitting there going, Dave, I don't believe you. Brothers and sisters, all of you are living in imminency, what we call imminence. I hate to tell you that, but every one of you in this room are living in imminence. You say, what do I mean by that? Imminence means that just like that, you could be home with Jesus. And when Paul wrote in 57 AD, they didn't have Charlton emergency rooms. They didn't have complicated procedures. They were raised in a culture where people died almost every week. Little babies were thrown out in the street and died because they weren't cared for. Life was really fragile in the first century. America convinces you you're invulnerable. You're going to live forever. You ain't. You're not. And I'm not either. And I don't want that to be a downer. I want that to be a great hope. Because the great hope that you have today is if I suddenly get the word from the doctor that I have a malignancy and I have a short time, I go, doctor, I've been living on a short time ever since I came to know Jesus. And brothers and sisters, I want you to know that I have had many of you, to be honest with you, I wrestle with that, like, I've never had someone give me the report, hey, you got a malignancy. You've only got so much time. But down to the years, I've had many of you as my brothers and sisters, and some of them are already home in glory. And I've been right there where they told the doctor, it's okay, doc, because my Savior might come before even the malignancy does its thing. And I got great courage that my malignancy can be conquered by my resurrected incredible health-giving Savior. But he might just choose because he's so impatient to see me and he wants to hug me and he wants to deliver me from this present time of darkness. Maybe he's going to take me home. And you've got brothers and sisters right here in this room and you've got brothers and sisters throughout the church family that really believe like that. Isn't that awesome? That's why the Apostle Paul says, wake up, whether you're a child in this room, whether you're a young person, whether you're an adult, he's saying, Christ could come back. The beginning of the end has already started. And the great day of redemption, you see, this is the idea. What Paul says in this passage is we're living in the night. It's dark in the world that we live in. There's death, and there's disease, and there's injustice, and there's horrible sin. But we've got a Savior that has overcome the world. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. 
He's saying the time has come. I want you to awake from sleep because our salvation is nearer than we first believed. How many would agree that the Lord Jesus is coming? Can we all agree on this? All of you that agree, the Lord's coming is closer. In my own case, the Lord is closer to coming back than when I received Jesus at five years of age. How many of you would agree with that? How many would all agree Jesus is closer to coming back than when you made a decision for Christ? And if you haven't made a decision for Christ, please do it today because Jesus is coming back. Amen? That's the idea. And that's a unity. That's a very clear biblical theological idea. Nobody should lose that. And I want you to pray for me. I can argue about theology, but what it does to me is I stop yearning for my Savior. I don't want that. I don't want those debates and the disagreements that caused me not to hear Jesus' very clear word. David, I love you. I love Midlothian Bible Church. I'm going to come for them. And the night will be over and the day will come. So the Apostle Paul goes on and says this. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Amen? It's like early in history. Some of you don't get up early enough, but uh, I do. I'm kind of a weird guy. How many of you get up before sunrise? We'll have confession time. How many of you notice that, like, just before the sun comes up, it's kind of this, and, like, this morning it was like that, especially with the fog, for the fog. It's kind of in between dark and day. When you're in the mountains, it's really just really graphic. I mean, it's just a big line as you're in this valley, and then the sun comes up over the ridge. You can see the light begin the dawn on the eastern mountain range, and then suddenly you're hit with this radiating light, and you go from being cold and being dark and rustling in your sleeping bag. Suddenly the light is blazing forth and bringing you warmth. That's the anticipation that's in this passage. Jesus, the light is dawning on the mountain range. We're living in the valley of darkness, but the radiating light of Jesus is beginning to break and the early church lived with that anticipation, a word to live with that anticipation. Then he gets really practical. How are we going to live? He says, okay, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. If you're a young person here, I want to know that Jesus is the one that wants to protect you. You put armor on you for protection. When you're on a battlefield, like, and this is right here, those of you that are police officers, how many of you wear flak jackets? All the police officers, how many of you wear from time to time, especially in a dangerous situation? The guys are raising their hand and girls as well. That's putting on armor so that the enemy, when they shoot at you, your, your, the, your heart is protected. It's harder to hit your head. We're going to really protect you. We would put some protect on your head. In fact, when my buddies in law enforcement go in to really tough situation, they put on a whole gear when they have shields in front of them. The Lord is saying that as we go out into a dark, sinful world, that we put on the armor of light. What is it? Ephesians 6. We put on the helmet of salvation. We take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, we have the breastplate of righteousness. We have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And what Romans 6 is saying is exactly what Paul is saying is, what is your salvation? What is your righteousness? What is the good news? Who is it? Tell me, everybody. 
And that's why Paul says that we clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. I want you to know that the armor is not principles that you learn, although that's important. It's not just trying to, over, to change your moral character, although that's important. But the way that we do all those things is Jesus, according to the book of Romans, has come to live inside of us. Jesus has come to live inside of us, but Paul is challenging us. Remember he said we need to renew our mind daily? Today you have to decide, will I clothe myself in Jesus? For example, Hat, Charles Hatley today, walks in. Charles, stand up. Show him your new jacket. Man, he looks dapper as can be. I mean, man, he's got this shirt. All of his life, he's wanted one of these fancy leather sport cups. I mean, I want one of those. I love those. They, man, how many of you men like nice? I noticed a lot of you guys have really. How many of you men like nice leather sport cups? Well, you know, Joe gave him that gift for Christmas, I think. Right, Joe? But let's suppose it's cold outside today. And Hat has his jacket, you know, in the closet. So, man, that's a great jacket. What did he have to do for the jacket to work? He had to put it on. So do you. Jesus is in your life, and it's all imagery, but it's what needs to be happening daily. You decide as a father, as a mother, whether you will clothe yourself with Jesus, and you'll be honest about when you don't relate to your kids, or you don't relate to your spouse, or you don't relate to your friends, or you don't, or I don't relate to my fellow staff in the pastoral ministry, or I don't relate to our leaders, and on and on it goes. I decide whether I will be clothed in Jesus. And that's what it means to be awake. It means that I'm wide awake. And I'm letting Jesus transform me. I'm letting his personality live through me. I am doing the things like making the garden grow because I'm pulling out the weeds and I'm fertilizing it because I'm studying God's word. And I want to bless you this morning. This is part of what the Spirit of God does. I don't know why, but he's chosen to use the teaching of his word. He's chosen to use the foolishness of preaching to build God's people. Amen? That's part of our experience together. So it's the time you're going to spend after this. That's part of what enables us to clothe ourselves with Jesus. Now I close. we got to get really practical. What does this look like? Robert wasn't awake. Some of us haven't been awake. The apostle Paul, I love him about it, you know, it's not very theoretical. How many of you in your life have ever lived in the dark? And I want to read, this is what Paul considers the dark. He says, so let us put aside the deeds of darkness. And so in the back of my mind, I'm asking, what are these deeds of darkness that you're all uptight about? You know, is it playing old maid with my friends? Maybe it's playing spades with my friends. You know, maybe it's square dancing. That's, I was taught that when I was a kid. Like, I had a square dance with another guy, which is really different. <laughs> so I asked myself, when I read this, I say, okay, well, you know, Paul, what do you mean by the deeds of darkness? Let us behave decently. How many of you know what it means to behave? From the young to the old, do you know how to behave decently? In a well-pleasing way. In a way that produces honor to other people and to yourself. How many of you understand what I'm talking about? Okay, now it gets really specific. Not in wild parties, the NIV, you know, they're a little bit uptight. Orgies, you know, most of you would say, I'm not involved in orgies. How many in this room have ever been involved in a wild party? Everyone that's ever been in a wild party, stand up. Come on. 
right now, any one of you that's ever been in a wild party, you can sit down again. I had you do that. Listen, brother and sister, I had you do that. Thank you. Because do you realize that I deal with people every week that think that none of you were ever involved in a wild party, and that's why they're not here today. Now, what happened at wild parties? The next thing Paul says is sexual immorality. If you go to see uh, Oprah Winfrey's latest presentation to us, and by the way, The Great Debaters is a powerful movie. It has some rough stuff in it, and you know, it's not something you would take your little children to, but I would challenge all of you as adults to see it. You'll understand why you're African-American brothers and sisters. You'll understand when you're afraid to be on a lonely country road because some of your brothers are captured and skinned and hung, and then the rope is cut and you get burned. Those are dark days, brothers and sisters. That really happened. One of my great passions as we grow as a church family, that none of that darkness will be part of us. Amen. Like, I want red and yellow, black and white to be able to walk into this church family. They can become leaders. They become brothers and sisters. We'll sing their music. We'll play their instruments because we want to capture a little glimpse of heaven. Amen. I covet that. It would be a miracle if it happened. Hardly anyone's done it. But I challenge you to go see the movie. But I want, when you're watching the movie, the movie is a powerful presentation of Wiley College. One of the powerful statements is, there's a young African-American boy whose mom and dad died, was raised by his grandparents, and now he's living out in the, in the jungle of Caddo Lake by himself in a single-room cabin. But he goes to Wiley College in the daytime, but early in the film, he goes out into the dark. He goes out to a wild party. And there, he's sitting there with a beautiful woman, and they're drinking. And he begins to make passes at that beautiful woman. And as they drink a little bit more, they get a little bit looser. And then the young, incredibly handsome African-American man makes the invitation for this woman to come with him. And he grabs her by the hand and he begins to walk out of that wild party. Just as he's ready to walk out of that wild party, a great big burly man comes in, takes out his switchblade, and the fight is on. It's her husband. Now, that's what Paul is talking about. Children, the reason I want you to love Jesus, because the Bible tells you so, is because Jesus will help you to be able to tell your friends when they say everybody's doing it, you'll say, I know all about wild parties. I learned about them at church on Sunday morning. <laughs> I know all about drinking too much. I know about the immorality that flows from that. And no thank you. But I was raised in a family where I learned it was a whole lot better to wait till you had a woman that would be beside you in the morning even when your alarm failed to go off. And that's what I'm living for. I was also raised in a church family with a whole lot of people that blew it 
and went to wild parties, and some of them drank too much. But they came to Jesus, and they slipped and, you know, they fell, but they kept asking Jesus to work in their life. And I saw over time men and women that were alcoholics, men and women that were drug addicts, men and women that were hooked on wild parties and pornography and fornication and sexual immorality of all kinds, including homosexuality. I was raised in a church family where I saw the incredible death of Jesus bring forgiveness to them. And I saw the incredible power of Christ's resurrection setting them free. The Apostle Paul says, as children of light, behave decently in the daytime. In Oprah's movie, The Great Debaters, this young man, Denzel Washington, goes as his teacher and grabs him out of that wild party. And the challenge of the movie is that if you can get your head, slave owners tried to keep the body strong and the mind weak. So one of the powerful methods of the film is that you got to develop your mind. Well, I got news for you. I've developed my mind. You can ask Mary about as far as this works in mind to be developed. And it hasn't helped me to be free from lust. It hasn't set me free from sin. Because I've been with really powerful, educated sinners, and they just sin more cunningly. So what I want to say is that's a great film, great story. But winning a debate at Harvard never set anybody free but my Savior can. And that's what I want you to believe. I'll be honest, I've never really, I've been to a wild party to grab people out of them. <laughs> so I really know what your wild parties are, but, and I, but I've grabbed the drunken husband before he wrecked his car. So, and I've never been drunk in my whole life. So I can just forget about this passage. It says, not just drunken parties, but with strife, dissensions, jealousy. Some of you that are real pious evangelicals that knew the dispensations like I did. My movement down through the years has been filled with jealousy. I'm filled with jealousy. And then I can, be, I can dissent. I want all of you to know that when there's strife in your marriage, when there's strife in your family, the reason it produces strife is because you're zealous for yourself and you're not zealous for God. You hear what I just said? What makes a really bad fight is when you're zealous for yourself, which is what jealousy is all about. In other words, in this church family, and as you go out into your work, there's all kinds of giftedness around you. The Lord has given every one of you incredible gifts, and he wants you to play your part. But we tend to covet what someone else has, and then we fight. Like next week, we're going to find out. How many of you ever heard, how many know that there's churches that exist because you need to worship on Friday night and not Sunday morning? Or you need to spend time on Saturday night Sunday Anybody heard of churches like that? How many of you have ever heard of churches that emphasize food laws? How many of you ever heard of churches that divided over candles? Brothers and sisters, I was raised in an environment where the churches I went to, when there were candles, they never heard the gospel. 
And I played baseball all week long and played football all during football season with brothers and sisters that went to church as brothers, because back in the days before we let the girls play with us. They all went to church where they burned candles and they had beautiful incense. But they never heard the evangel. They never heard Jesus die on the cross for their sins. They never heard that Jesus rose again. So my emotional response is, what are we doing? And brothers and sisters, what I want you to know is that I have a lot of younger believing friends. That's not at all what they think of. In fact, I'm going to tell you what I want you to think of this morning. If I turned off all the lights in the auditorium this morning, it would be dark in here except for you're the candles. Every one of you are the candles. And when you go out and get drunk, when you're sexually immoral, you snuff out the candle. When we can't get along in our families, when we can't get older folks to unite with younger folks and younger folks to unite with older folks, when we argue and fight, we snuff out the candle. Strife and jealousy snuffs out the candle. I want you to think of these candles up here today as being your light. I want you to realize today the Apostle Paul is sounding an alarm. Poor Robert might lose his job, but if he's not awake because Jesus is coming back and he sleeps when he needs to be taking this incredible light, then that's really tragedy. This morning at the time, the reason we gather together is just to say quietly, Lord, forgive me. In my old flesh, I'm a son or daughter of the night. But Jesus, Savior, you're, you're coming back. But you're not just coming back, but you're right here in my heart today. Start holding each other accountable. Because he's going to break through the blue, and it could be before I speak to you the next time.